I guess you're really just here to talk. I was like, yeah, I told you that. I promised. That's what I was doing. So um, he, he texted me and said, hey, I saw on Facebook that you're dropping out. Are you? And I said, nope. And he said, okay. Um, you might want to check on that. But he's not the first one. He's the last person that asked me. All this. So I don't know. I, I'm, the reason I'm saying that is if you see this online somewhere, if you see this, and, and I think the, the conversation has started with the mentality that because David Williams, um, who had this seat before me, he's the incumbent, because he lost to uh, uh, Doug Lamborn, that, that um, he, somehow he can have that seat back or something. I don't know, I don't know, how, I don't know how people think it works, but um, that's not how it works. And so, um, so if you see that, online or you see it on Facebook or something else, just correct it. Say, I talked to uh, himself and he said he's not dropping out. Okay. Any questions about anything about the election or any, any of that stuff? I have a question for you. Yes, sir. How is your campaign going to go? Are there any plans or what's the story behind your campaign? How's it going now? Yeah. What's, yeah. Um, so, so at the where we are now, now that the primary is over, we're going to actually start. I mean, I've been doing stuff. I've been speaking at all kinds of things constantly. I just don't make a... You guys just don't know about it unless you are in that district or you show up or you get an email or something. Um, in fact, sometimes I, I... There's been a few weeks over the last month or so that I've spoke every night somewhere. Um, but... Uh, now we're actually going to kind of gear up and, and do some campaigning and do some stuff like that. Um, um, raising money is what I have to do now. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you guys. I won't make you, I won't let you, I mean, stop you. But <coughs> if you, if you want to give to something, I would prefer you give to the building fund. Okay. Um, but I'm going to campaign. I've got some things. We've got some stuff planned that's coming up, and um, also some of the people that are endorsing me are wanting me to speak at some things they're doing, like like rallies and stuff they put on. Who's your campaign manager? Um, unoffici- officially, no one. Unofficially, Mark yeah, unofficially, Mark Bronick. He just just don't like me telling people he's my campaign manager, but he is. Um, and in fact, when you see him, uh, congratulate him on being a great campaign manager, and the fact that he's doing a great job. He really is. He's doing all the heavy lifting for me. He's doing all the state stuff. And uh, what's called Tracer, which is the state uh, website, that every little breath you take, every little move you make, uh, they're watching you, and you have to document that online. So some of you older guys got that, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, it is, <laughs> right, and that's what they're doing. Um, but you have to record everything, and Mark's taking care of all that, and Linda's doing, like, all the other stuff, and um, I'm just the eye candy. I'm the, and I know probably most of you already assumed that, but uh, that's who I am. So <laughs> I do the speeches and all that kind of stuff, and, but there's a lot of work to this. There's a lot more work than I thought there was uh, to this, and uh, Mark is carrying a, a, the lion's share of that. He and Linda both, really, they're both working together on. And so we're going to be doing some campaign stuff. And if you guys want, I'll let you know when I'm doing that stuff. I'm not, 
I'm not ever going to like announce it in the church and stuff like that. But, but I, I speak at stuff actually fairly regularly. So, yeah, please do that. I really would not have a problem with that being my campaign slogan, but other people would, <laughs> like Mark and Linda. <clears throat> All right. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so any questions about that? Anything else? No, but if you ever need a sign language interpreter on stage, let me know. Um, there, there will be some times in the future that I'm going to. I <clears throat> I haven't like talked to you two about it yet, but there will be some times that I'm going to need to do that. Um, there already has been some times. I just didn't know until I got there because I'm not the one organizing the events. Uh, I'm, they they ask me to come to the events, but somebody else organizes them. Some somebody that has a specific um, agenda or something they're trying to promote, and and I and they endorse me, so they have me come and speak. Um, to bring all of my political weight to bear, which is about that much. So, it's the eye candy. I know that. I don't mind being used that way. I just wish they would say it out loud. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> um, let's jump into Daniel 11. Now, uh, coming from Daniel 10 into Daniel 11, we're walking through historical stuff, right? This stuff is, has already happened. Um, it's not until we get later on into chapter 11, and I'll show you when that happens and uh, how we can tell that's what's happening. Um, but we're still going on historical stuff. And what is, <coughs> excuse me, what is the basic historical <coughs> story about? You guys know? Well, we'll just jump into it, and I'll, we'll talk about it. Daniel 11, verse 1. Actually, verse 2, because verse 1 was in chapter 10, because whoever put the chapters didn't split it right, and, and the New Living Translation split it properly. Um, there shouldn't have been a division there. So uh, verse 2 is actually kind of the next uh, paragraph mentality. So, now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Um, now, who, who's talking here? Gabriel, right? He's, and he's talking to Daniel, and he says, Daniel, I'll reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Now, who, who, are, who are Persian kings? Where is that? Yes, it's, a, it's the Medo, it's Iran, Medo-Persian Empire. And we see that going back into to Daniel 2. Um, that's the Medo-Persians uh, uh, attacked and captured um, the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who was Babylonian. Okay? So it's still the same thing. We're still seeing all the same players and, and much of the same storyline. It's just being repeated throughout... Uh, the book, okay? Then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. Who is this king? Cyrus? 
he's, um, this king is going to be fighting against the Medo-Persians or the Persians. This is Alexander the Great. Okay? But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. Now, again, I, I do struggle with this. I, I do believe that this is the four kings that succeed Alexander the Great. The problem that I have with this is that there were actually five kings. I, I, don't, I don't understand how that happens. But, um, uh, but at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had, for his kingdom will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. Okay? Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to secure the alliance, but she will lose her influence over him, so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters. But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. Now, who are these, who are these play, people, these players? These four kings. And those are Alexander's generals. And then there is um, one guy that rises up. We, we've seen this in, in, um, in uh, Daniel... 7, Daniel 8, we've seen these things. Well, going back to even Daniel 2, we saw that. Um, who is this? Who are, these are the four kings following Alexander. And then who is the, um, in Daniel 7, where it talks about the other horn that rises up and takes these over, who's that? We keep saying his name a lot. Antichonus Epiphanes. Okay. All right, when he returns to Egypt, he will carry their idols along with him, along with priceless articles of gold and silver. So some years afterwards, he will leave the king of the north alone. Later, the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will soon return to his own land. However, the sons of the king of the north will assemble a mighty army that advances like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortresses, the fortress. Now, this is, <clears throat> do you need something, Kate? I have a mic. Oh, sure. You going to do that? <laughs> well, she's not ugly, but she's not. She's not eye candy. <laughs> what? Who said that? That is not called for, sir. Uh, two. All right. Okay, then in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. After the enemy, after the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies, but his success will be short-lived. All right? This is, this is the same story that's being repeated, but, but now Gabriel's explaining it to Daniel again. Why, why do you think this story keeps getting explained throughout the book of Daniel? This is at least the third time that it's been explained. Any ideas? Sure 
there's, um, I think it's called the law of double, I forgot, it's like a profit, it's gonna happen now, but then the, the same type of plan will happen later on. Yeah. Could, could that be a part of this? Yes, it is part of it. Okay. Okay, that, that is an important thing. But here's something, here's something I think that is important when it comes to prophecy. And, and, I, and I think I've mentioned, I probably have mentioned this at some level before, but here's something I think that is important with prophecy. I don't necessarily think God gives us prophecy so that, I'm, and I'm saying specifically future eschatological prophecy. I don't think he necessarily gives us that so that we can um, um, be trying to figure out the future, okay? In, in fact, I, I just had a, I just did a teaching online, um, what is today, Wednesday? Last night, actually I did it online last night. And this is going to go to um, many, many countries around the world, okay? And uh, we were discussing, it was a panel of us, and we were discussing biblical prophecy and some of this kind of stuff. And, uh, and one of the things came up that was discussing the difference between um, prophecy, in other words, uh, hu humans prophesying to people, other people, churches, individuals, whatever, and biblical prophecy. And uh, they, they got to discussing some of the things that are, that are happening online that are becoming really strong and popular right now, where people are prophesying. Now, now follow, follow the way I'm using the words here. They are prophesying about prophecy. Okay? And here's my thinking, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be one of those quench the Holy Spirit people or, or trying to limit this to some extent, but I kind of struggle with People that say that God has given them a prophetic utterance, and I, and I believe strongly in prophecy. Let me make sure I say that first. I believe strongly in prophecy. I, I believe that all of us should be, 1 Corinthians 14, we should be prophesying in our services. Um, we should, we, that should be, that should be uh, an element in every service that we have. That's, that's what the gifts of the Spirit are for. But when somebody says that they are prophesying about prophecy, biblical prophecy. I struggle with that a little bit because there's not an accountability to that. Okay? In other words, I, I'm going to pick something that's over the top, but if somebody says, well, I believe that, um, that uh, the Lord has told me that, that uh, Jesus is coming back um, on September 15th. Okay? That is prophetic utterance about biblical prophecy. And even if they use scriptures and stuff like that to say, now I, I'm one of those that do believe, and I'm going to speak about this in probably a month and a half, but I do believe that the rapture is going to take place during the time of the festival of trumpets. Okay. But that's a time frame. That's not a day. Right. But if, but, but if somebody prophesies or, or even says something like, I believe that during the festival of trumpets this year, Jesus is coming back. That's prophetic utterance about biblical prophecy, okay? And I struggle with that because a few things. One is it cannot be, um, you, you can't necessarily hold them accountable. I mean, I think you can if they give a specific date like that. And here's the reality. If they do that and it doesn't happen, you should never believe anything they say, right? Okay. But when there's, I, I don't think, I think the Lord has given us enough biblical prophecy and we don't even understand all of that yet. I don't think we need people putting prophetic utterances in there. And I personally don't think 
that the Lord is doing that. Okay? Now, I, I think we're supposed to study biblical prophecy, and I do believe that, it, that there is some end um, time, now time, in between time stuff going on. But I, but I think let the biblical prophecy stand by itself. Don't prophesy into it. Um, prophesy in our churches to edify ourselves. That's what scripture says, right? Um, and I think there's a little bit of, of, there's a tendency for that. But here's one of the things about, let's go back to the, the question that I asked. Um, why, is, why does God seem to be repeating this story throughout the book of Daniel? Here's, an, here's a really good way to understand um, a, a big picture mentality of biblical prophecy is the Lord will show you stuff so that when it happens, you will recognize it. Okay? This is, this is very important. There's a difference between that and you trying to figure out exactly how it's going to happen. The Lord will show you um, biblical stuff. He will, through Bible, he will show you prophetic stuff and even end-time stuff and things like that. So as it's unfolding, you'll recognize that it's happening. Um, for example, did you want to say something, Russell? Yeah, I think that, you know, the Lord tells us signs to look for and seasons to look for, but the event of, say, the rapture, that's an event. And so we can, we'll see the signs surrounding that, and I think it's okay to... You know, look for the signs, look for that. But the event, you know, I think that that is God-ordained and he has that hidden. Yep. And so difference between event, the actual event, and the signs and seasons. Yeah, and the signs of the times. You're going to know a bunch of stuff. You're going to see the times unfolding, seasons unfolding that we see in Scripture. For example, let's go backwards. We, we see Scripture, this was prophetic, Scripture that tells us about the birth of Jesus. Hundreds of prophecies about Jesus himself. And um, one is that he was going to be... Uh, well, l- let's take some of the geography. He was going to be in Africa. He was going to be um, born in Bethlehem. Um, he was going to be a Nazarene. There's a bunch of that stuff that's very, very detailed. specifically says this stuff. There's no way you could have come up ahead of time. If we had a preacher 100 years before Jesus, nobody could have come up with how that was going to happen. But God specifically tells us hundreds of years before it does happen so that as it is happening, it, we are watching it unfold and we see it and it brings us to points of faith, understanding, and revelation. Okay? A lot of the stuff about Jesus, when he fulfilled things um, through his birth, through his, through his um, life growing up, through the ministry that he had, all these different things, when we see this stuff, these are very prophetic revelation kind of things. And people that really were listening, like Nicodemus. Nicodemus noticed something was different about Jesus, and he had been studying the law all of his life, and these things were coming to pass, and he couldn't quite reconcile the fact that Jesus couldn't be God, but he was doing all this God stuff, right? And it's the same thing. Think about this. We see the 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the tribulation that, that um, evangelize. And the, the largest um, inf- influx of 
Jewish people get saved during that time frame. You realize one of the driving forces behind that is all of the scriptures that they have been they're blind to up until now, they will be seeing some of this stuff unfold literally right in front of their eyes. Stuff written in scripture like the two witnesses, stuff like that. They're going to see this stuff right there in front of their eyes, and they're not going to be able to get around this. Now, in my thinking, they can't get around this stuff already. There's too much prophecy about Jesus already that they've closed their eyes to. But this is why, um, this, to me, this also lends into a pre-tribulation rapture. Only secondarily, not scripturally, but secondarily. When the rapture happens, that's going to get a lot of people's attention. When the Antichrist stands up in the uh, temple at the three and a half year mark, that is the singular thing in all of scripture that opens the eyes of the Jewish people. And scripture says it about ten different ways. That's... That's, they can't see it eschatologically right now. They can't see it prophetically. But when it happens, they will see it real time. And that revelation will be one of the strongest things that sees their, their uh, mind switch and, and begin to accept Jesus. The, the guy that they have been saying for centuries, is, or two millennium, is not the guy. All of a sudden, they're going to be in mass giving their heart to him. Surrendering their lives to him? Why? They're going to see this stuff unfold. And I don't think most of the New Testament scriptures are what they're going to see unfold. Because to them, the New Testament is not their book. They're going to see all these Old Testament scriptures that are going to be unfolded. One of the biggest things is Isaiah 53. You talk to a Jewish person, specifically Orthodox, they cannot, they will not discuss, will not accept that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. We know it's about Jesus, but their eyes are so blind to that. Their spirit is so blind to that, right? So this is why the story gets told over and over, and, and also to make sure that the people that are following through the time, from the time of Daniel to the time of Jesus, are watching this unfold. Remember, what is the theme of the Old Testament? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. That's the theme of the Old Testament. That's also the theme of the New Testament. It just happens to be Jesus is coming again. Everything in Daniel is pointing to Jesus. And, and this was um, uh, 500 years that this is unfolding that they get to see this, recognizing. Now, uh, many of them missed it. But again, we always have to remember, and this is where sometimes in the Western church we forget. You realize the first 200 years of the church, it was like 99.9% .9 Jewish. So there were people that got it. There were, there, all the disciples were Jewish. They got it. They understood that Jesus is the Messiah. But there was a lot that didn't too, Aiden. What happened to people, false prophets in the Old Testament, when the prophecies didn't come true? Were they punished? Were they killed? What happened? Yeah, they were stoned to death. Was it, was it the law? Yeah, it was the law. Which, by the way, I don't mind us having that criteria today too. I, I, I'm not joking. I think there's too many people running around saying, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophet, I prophesy, I prophesy. But there's no accountability to it. If you're wrong, and I don't mean somebody giving a, a, a prophetic message in church, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. That is, 1 Corinthians 14 says that's for the edification of the body. I think sometimes you're going to get that wrong, sometimes you're going to get that right. You're not going to be exact all the time. As long as it's edifying the body, you're okay. Um, but I'm saying when people stand up and they, and they make major 
either future predictions or they make major life-changing predictions for somebody. In other words, if I, if I prophesy uh, right now, uh, Russell, God wants you to uh, move to Korea and, and be a violin player in Korea. I need to be held accountable to that. And I have seen that happen many times. I need to be held accountable for that. If I'm wrong about that, I, I, the, the church needs to say, okay, um, guys, don't listen to Scott. He's full of it. Right? That's a lot milder than being stoned. Right? But God, the reason is God's pretty serious when you start saying, I am speaking for God. Now, there's a difference. Assuming that your heart is right, your spirit is right about it, I think you can make mistakes. That's not what I'm saying. There's nothing that we cannot make mistakes about that the, the grace and mercy is bigger and, and God will give us other chances and all this kind of stuff. But I'm talking about when we have this mentality that gets pushed that, that well, I'm a prophet. In fact, I don't even like it when people say I'm a prophet. That already turns me off. I'm a prophet. I don't care now. Now, if you say God really put this on my heart and I think I'm supposed to speak this out, that's, I'm totally okay with that. Let's do that. Um, and, then we'll, and then according to Scripture, we all judge that, right? We all um, test the spirits and see, is this from the Holy Spirit? Is they just um, really having a, a bad day? I mean, something, right? And then if somebody's out of line, it's my job or the leadership of the church to go to them and say, hey, I think you got that one a little wrong. Let's talk about it for a little bit. What, what were you sensing, feeling, something like that? This is not a bad thing. We're not trying to beat people up. In fact, you guys know I'm really wanting more of that in our church all the time. I think all nine gifts of the Holy Spirit should be in every service. I think that's the biblical model. Okay? And we do have most of those happening. Um, it's the verbal gifts that we don't necessarily have as much happening. Right? And then sometimes we do have that. But at the same time, you guys understand what I'm talking about. When somebody takes like a prophet role and they say, I'm going to speak these things into people's lives and people start coming to them like fortune tellers. Do you have a word for me? I, 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 can, I have a word for you. It's, it's a cool word. It's one word. Bible. Get in the Bible. Right? And you guys know I'm not anti-prophecy. But I think we play games with this stuff too much. And if somebody says, I am speaking for God, God says, okay, then let's hold you accountable <clears throat> to the point where we will give you a break, but God wants to stone you. Okay. Anything else about that? God wants us to see stuff unfolding. For example, all the prophecies about Israel becoming a nation again. We don't know how that was going to happen. If you would have backed up 10 years before that happened, 10 years, that would have been right before World War II, there's no way somebody could have imagined how Israel would become a nation again. It was not possible. It wasn't going to happen. And then, 10 years later, they're a nation. And, and people all over the world said, oh, that's what the prophecy was about. And I think most prophecy, it's going to be like that. It's more going to be, oh, that's what the prophecy is about, rather than let me tell you how the prophecy is going down. You, you, do you understand the difference in what I'm saying there? Okay. All righty. Verse 11. Then in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. 
After the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies, but his success will be short-lived. A few years later, the king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. At that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the south. But, okay, so who is the king of the south and king of the north? Where are these geographically? Syrian Egypt. Syrian Egypt, okay. <clears throat> Violent men among your own people will join them in fulfillment of this vision, for they will not succeed. Then the king of the north will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. The king of the north will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. He will make plans to come with the might of his entire kingdom, and form an alliance with the king of the south with the purpose of destroying Israel. He will give him a daughter in marriage to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plan will fail. After this, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. Now, this verse right here is where some people think that they're talking about America. And there is a verse in, in Revelation that people say, well, that's probably America. The, in the verse in Revelation is something along the lines of an army from over the seas, right? And so Americans always say, well, that's America. I, I think that is a complete guess in the dark. We don't know that. Aiden? Would it be, um, Microphone. No. Would it be Canada or the Phoenicians, that area, the coastal cities there? I think it's, I think, yes, I think it's the coastal cities of the Mediterranean. Because they were very significant because they... they um, I think was it was it uh, Canaan? I think that at one time didn't they? Um, they had a lot of fishing there, and they made a lot of money. And very, very wealthy. Yeah. Yeah, they're very very significant. To have yeah. that area was very. And I, and I think over the sea means the Mediterranean, not oceans all the way to America. Okay, but a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. He will take refuge in his own fortress, but will stumble. And fall and be seen no more. His successor will send it. Now, you understand, this is after, now we're, we've moved on after Antigonus Epiphanes, right? Because now he's sent his successor. We're talking about wars. And this has all been fulfilled already in history. Okay? His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. But after a very brief reign, he will die, though not from anger or in battle. Now, all of this up until this point has been fulfilled. Now, here's where I think the, sh the shift happens because we've already seen two shifts in the last uh, few sentences here, right? Now, some people, in fact, a lot, I would say a lot of, um, of end-time type preachers and stuff like that say that this doesn't, this transition that I think is happening right here doesn't happen until verse 36. I believe we're shifting now and what Aiden was saying earlier where we've been talking about, now, all of this is future for Daniel, but for us, I believe looking backwards, we've seen all of the progression of Alexander the Great, the four kings, Antigonus, Epiphanes, and now we're jumping ahead and we're seeing the Antichrist. Okay? Now, here's one of the things. One of the, one of the classes that, um, that I teach for, um, <clears throat> for Southwestern, um, this is an undergraduate class. Um, one of the classes that I teach is um, 
can't tell you the name. It's a big name. Um, but it's, it's Bible as literature, basically what it is. So, so you're not looking at the Bible theologically. You're not looking at, although that is part of it, you're not looking at the Bible according to like books and, and um, minor prophets, major prophets, all this stuff. You're looking at it as, as um, literature, how it's written. The, 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 the flow of Scripture and how these sentences are put together. And so then, therefore, you have to bring a lot of stuff into to play with this, this subject having to do with when it was written and what the, how they wrote during that time frame. That's a big one. If you remember what I talked about with Daniel, is Daniel is a book that... <clears throat> this, this is the way we do English books, or American but Western books, is we have a, a, an opening... Um, and, and these would be more academic, but even fiction, all this kind of stuff. But we have an opening, and, and in the opening, somewhere in the opening, you're going to have um, the thesis statement for the book, right? And then through the flow of the book, you're going to build a case for that thesis, and then at the end, you're going to um, uh, uh, recap it, Okay? Explain it or tie it together if you need to, depending on what the book is, right? So that's the way we have in, in a Western society. That's, that's a, a, the strongest literature style that we have is opening, body, closing, right? So you have these ends with all this information in the middle. Daniel is the exact opposite. And a lot of books written at this time frame were very similar to this, is you have... Um, your, your main point and your thesis is in the middle of the book. Everything builds up to that, and then everything flows away from it. And all of this stuff is the explanation coming up to and then the um, explanation coming out of that point. But the main point's in the middle of the book. That is very, very common uh, in this time frame and this style of writing. This is why that I believe that the, that the, the, the scriptures in Daniel 7 that talk about the uh, counsel of God and, and Jesus and all, I believe that is the main point of the book of Daniel, all right? That's the point, which, by the way, it's also the main point of the Bible, that, that little section right there in Daniel. Now, why is that important? Because the, when you see, when you follow literary um, concepts in the Old, Bi in the Old Testament, you can, you can learn things that you don't see naturally with a Western style of approaching a book, okay? I'll give you another one. And, I, and I've written some papers and stuff about this, and nobody um, agrees with me because they, they don't have the Holy Spirit in their life, but they will eventually. But I, I believe the book of Acts is the same way. I believe that the book of Acts starts out with the explanation and stuff, and we get in the first few sentences what the book of Acts is going to be. But it's not exactly like Daniel, but we get... Luke is writing to a Greek audience, and then we see chapter 9 and chapter 10 is the middle of the book of Acts, okay? Yes, the outline of the book of Acts can be Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We see that. If you go linear, we see that in the book of Acts. But I believe that the, the point that Luke is trying to get across is that you, as a non-Jewish person, can be saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and have amazing ministry. That's the point of the book of Acts. All of that is under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 9, the story of Cornelius. Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Acts chapter 10, Peter repeats that same story to the Jewish church. And all of it has to do with 
Cornelius was saved and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know he was saved because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke in tongues. That's the point. To who? Non-Jewish audience. You start out, all the players are Jewish. By the time you get to the end, all, almost all the players are not Jewish. That's not coincidence. Okay? Um, so, so when you follow certain literary styles, you'll see things in Scripture that you don't see other, other ways when you recognize this. Now, why am I saying all that? Because here's what you can do. You analyze it yourself, and you see if I'm right about this. In, um, in Starting in verse 21, I believe we've switched, right? Um, so uh, verse 18, but a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence, cause him to retreat in shame. He will take refuge. Um, verse 20, his successor. So we've seen two different... We've seen the, the primary character, Antigonus Epiphanes. Then we see a commander from another land. Then we see his successor. These are three switches, three different people. Two switches, three different people. All right? Then verse 21 says, the next to come to power. So this is no longer Antigonus Epiphanes. Can't be. It's the next person to come to power. The, 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 the flow of this from here on out, here's what I would say. Start from verse 21 and read to the end of chapter 12 and tell me if there is a major personnel change. I don't believe there is. Is, there, is this next to come to power? Is this person ever unseated from verse 21 all the way to the end of chapter 12. Because we know when we get to chapter 12, we're in the very end of the end times. Daniel says that. Right? Why, why am I saying that? If you back up to verse 21, this, this was talking about the time and then it jumps into the future. It was a very common thing in Scripture. It happens all the time. And now we're looking at, I believe, the Antichrist. And this, the, the, the grammatical flow of the words, sentences, does not change from verse 21 until the end of chapter 12. It's the same person through the whole thing. But it is not the same person from the verses 1 through 20. Okay? Make sense? All right. And, and, and when, when most of these guys that say, well, yeah, that starts in... In verse 36, when it says the king will do as he pleases. But the thing is, is we don't see a change anywhere coming into verse 30, 36 that, that makes that king somebody different than the person in verse 21. That's why I think it starts in verse 21, not verse 36. Aiden? Maybe I'm just confused, but I'm curious about something. So everything so far, we have this king of the north, king of the south, but, and then it goes into the end of times for a future date. Is this a, a double reference of some kind that there is going to be a person that comes to oppose, but then again, this is also reference to something that's going to happen, say, in Revelation or whatever, or later yes. on. So if it's a double, if it's if it's a scripture with a double reference, what's well, it referring to to begin with now? Then, um, well, here's the thing: it 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 can be, and I, and I can explain how the double reference can happen, but I don't think that's really. It doesn't play out very well in in history for that to happen. But what's it talking about presently in this time period? I think. Once we get to verse 21, if, this is what I'm saying, is if you follow this, 
the, the new successor in verse 21 is the person that we see from 21 all the way to end of 12, which means that, this, that we've jumped ahead. Because you, the, the person at the end of chapter 12 is doing all the end time stuff. It's the Antichrist. But we have not seen a change of personnel from 21 until the end of 12. So I think it's completely just jumped ahead. Okay. Okay, so I think with the confusion here then, for at least me, um, when you were referencing a new successor uh, that it mentions in, what, verse 20? Yeah. So then it also goes on to talk about the king of the north and the king of the south. So if we're, we've jumped to modern times and towards the end of the age or the end of the world or whatever, then who are those kings? That the because you know it was like the king of Syria and the Ptolemy or whatever the king of Egypt and now we're coming to the successor who is the Antichrist. So who are those kings then? Okay, so this is where this is where I think when you bring some other scripture in, it makes a little more sense. All right, the king of the north and king of the south right now are those same countries. But they're different kings, still Egypt and Syria, right? Um, and, and this is why even in uh, Ezekiel, when it talks about the battle of Gog and Magog, uh, we see where it names all these same countries. But if you're reading Ezekiel from the point of view that it's all happening right then, you've you got the countries, but it's not making sense, Okay. And as we walk down through this, you'll see this. We've got the countries, but if you're, if you're staying in the same time frame, it's not making sense anymore, at least to me. Okay? And, and we'll look at that when it, it comes to that. Um, for example, we see um, verse 21, the next to come to power. Verse 25, then he will stir up. Verse 28, the king of the north. Um, uh, then at the appointed time, this is the same guy. From 21 down is definitely the same guy, all right? Verse 36, um, the king will do as he pleases, all these different things, all right? Um, um, let me go down a little bit farther. We're going to go back and go verse by verse, but... Okay, here's, here's a good example. Verse 43 he will gain control over the gold, silver, and treasures of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will be his servants. That, that's not Antichrist's epiphanies. He didn't do that stuff. Right? So somewhere, somewhere we've had a shift. We're no longer talking about Antigonus epiphanies because he didn't do that stuff. So somewhere, and I believe it starts in verse 21. Some people think it starts in verse 36. Um, that's, that somehow, when did we switch? When did this become somebody else? Because we're following it historically, and to me, historically, it matches up completely up till, with maybe some exceptions, but it fits completely up till verse 20. But when you get to verse 21, it can't be, even if you just take verse 21, the next to come to power. Well, who is the one who came to power after Antigonus Epiphanes? Anybody? I, I'm saying it's Antichrist. That's not... I'm saying if you're staying in the time frame, then. If, if we're saying it's not the Antichrist, who's this 
next to come to power. You understand what I'm saying? For it to be following the, Bibli- the historical pattern, you've got to have that guy. Okay? And he has to fit this scripture, or we've changed somewhere along the line. We've run ahead somewhere. Okay? Now, let, let, me, let me jump way ahead. Um, Pastor, a quick question in verse 22. Then who is the covenant prince that he's talking about? Who, okay. Verse 22. Do you, um, any ideas? So, okay, let, let's answer it this way. When we're talking about covenant, what are we talking about? Israel. Maybe prime minister of Israel at that time. Or? Okay. Yeah, but don't, don't jump ahead too much. When we're talking about covenant in the Old Testament, what are we talking about? The Jews and always the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, always the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, they really don't ever reference the Mosaic covenant once Abraham comes along. It's always Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? What is the Abrahamic covenant? The Abrahamic covenant involves three things. Land. People. And God. It's all together. Land, people, and God. This is what something in Western society we don't really understand. We don't understand that connection to land. Even though we can be very loyal to the United States, we don't see it as um, our people came from this land and we are, I'm saying part of the actual land, not the, America is an idea. It's not a place. Um, we don't have that same kind of mentality, but the Abraham covenant always God, land, and people. So the, so the, so the covenant prince has to be uh, God, land, and people. Has to be part of Israel, God, land, and people. Okay? So, um, prime minister could legitimately be that. Yes. The, 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 the prince or the covenant carrier of Israel, the person that's in charge. And here's the thing is, who would this have been historically at the time that we're talking about here? There is not that person. There is not a covenant prince. There has been a covenant prince um, at different times uh, before that, and we have that now if, if we're saying that the leadership of Israel could be that. But there is not a covenant prince in history to figure this out. This is why I'm saying some of these things, we have to have jumped ahead because all of a sudden the, the historical line, the historical information was jiving just fine. With, the, with Alexander the Great, the kings, Antichonus, all this kind of stuff was jiving just fine until you get to verse 21. And then when it says the next to come to power, you've got to historically, it can't be Antigonus anymore. So who is it? And then who is the covenant prince for these things to be happening? Yes, sir. So this is future, and right now Israel has... I mean, they're dissolving the Knesset and everything tomorrow morning um, and then have elections later. So do you think that since it says covenant prince, if it's not kind of the, the prime minister, do you think that Israel would go through kind of a change in government 
during this time frame with the Antichrist, and that will be kind of the, they'll come up with some type of prince or king or something like that? Okay, so here's, now, everything that I'm saying now is, is a complete speculation, okay? But, but we'll use some things that we know Scripture explains pretty strongly. There is going to be this battle of Gog and Magog that happens before verse 21, okay? Um, when that happens, I believe a lot of things in the Middle East are going to change. One of the things that we know is going to change is assuming that Magog is Russia and they unite with Iran, there's no question whoever Magog is unites with Iran. That part we know. Assuming that Magog is Russia, or if it's not, this still all fits. But whoever Magog is that unites with Iran and then these other Islamic countries, they have one leader. That's Gog. One leader. Now, some people say Gog is the Antichrist, okay? I don't necessarily think that he is. He could be. It could be his run-up, his, like, prep for being the Antichrist, but he's going to be, Russia is going to submit themselves to him. Iran is going to submit themselves. Now, think about that. The leader of this war has, Iran has to submit and Russia has to submit. That's that's bizarre to me. And then you've got all these other countries, Syria, Libya, all these other countries that are going to, that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38, that are going to unite with Gog, uh, unite under Gog with Magog and Iran, and they're going to invade um, Israel. But God is going to stop them and destroy them all. All right? So here is, here is my question. If they're all united under this leader, whoever this leader is, which... I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet against it being the Antichrist. I just. Well, here's the thing: is a lot of people think it's the Antichrist because the Gog throughout Scripture is a spiritual thing as much as it is a human being. It's a spiritual entity, a demonic entity. So Gog could be the Antichrist, but whoever this leader is, he's going to unite all these countries. And interestingly, this, this is always the coolest one, specifically in the last probably five to ten years. Egypt is not part of that group. Up until the last five or ten years, Egypt was part of that group. If they all got together, Egypt would have been in there. All of a sudden, Egypt is pulling away from all these Islamic countries over there, and, and Egypt is left out of the list in Ezekiel 38. I just don't think that stuff's coincidence. I think you got to, this is what I was talking about earlier about, you got to pay attention to what is written in Scripture, because as it's unfolding, you will begin to recognize it, okay? So this being the case, who is going to be, and how is Israel going to be led during that time frame? That's the part that we don't know right now. Who is this covenant prince, Right? Now, it's, it's not a deity, it's not, a, um, like it, it's not Jesus or something like that, because covenant and prince are not um, formal words. They're, they're descriptive words. Does that make sense grammatically? You understand what I'm saying, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, so now let's go back to verse 21. Let's kind of walk through this. The next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. And remember this, we're starting to see some of the, the 
same language now that we're seeing from the four horns and some of that kind of stuff in, in uh, Daniel 7 and 8. Some of the same kind of language, right? Before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He's going to do all this through deception. He's not going to do it through military might because he doesn't have a kingdom. He has to do it through deception and take over kingdoms. The same concept is as Magog, Iran, and all that with Gog. Gog takes over or becomes the leader somehow. Now, some people say, well, it's because it's the president of Russia. I don't think that. Because of the way the term Gog is used, I don't think Gog is the president of Magog. I think he, is the, he becomes the leader of Magog. All right? Now, again, if we just want to speculate right now, Putin is, is dying. Putin's got cancer. He's dying. What comes after him? Who knows? Um, I don't think Israel is as upside down as it seems from American, Western point of view. When they say they dissolve the government and they're doing... That actually happens all the time in Israel. It's the way their government is designed. Israel is not in danger of some kind of coup or overthrow or anything like that right now. It's just the way their government is. It's different than the way we look at it. Okay? When we're talking about the end of time, is that the millennial kingdom? No, no, no. It's before the millennial. Oh, so then it's the tribulation? Yes. Okay, so then the church is already gone then. Yes. All right, so then it would be if, put in If all. the church is gone, if there is a pre-tribulation rapture, which I do believe, okay, I, I, I can, but I do I like, can, to, I like to hedge my bets there. No, no, that's okay, though. But I, we just went from history and putting a definition on this history, and it all makes sense from Alexander the Great to all these men and what happened, the four generals, what happened. And then we just jumped over to the speculation of, because we don't understand it. Yes. And it's a huge leap because Here, we don't understand it. Here's what we do know. is Starting in verse 21 no longer fits the history that was coming from Alexander to the kings to Antigonus. It no longer fits that. So it can't be then. It has to be something else. Right? Which is what we got to find. Which is what we're trying to figure out. Yeah. Now, up until... Now, let me... Make sure I say this properly. Up until verse 21, we can follow it historically pretty solidly. There's not a lot of guesswork there. We're not, we're not, um, we're not speculating up until verse 21. But something happens there that it no longer fits history. So if it has been fitting history perfectly up until there and now it doesn't, you've got to have some answer to that because it's no longer historical. Well, here's the reason I don't think it's that much speculation when we get further down, okay? When, l let me explain this. Um, uh, when you get into chapter 12, and chapter 12 carries the same thought process. He, he doesn't change subjects or anything. Uh, verse 1, it says, at that time, Michael the archangel, at that time, this is the same time that we're talking about. It doesn't, it doesn't say, like verse 21, the next thing, or the, this says, during this time, at that same time, um, 
Michael the archangel, then we see, um, uh, but you, Daniel, verse 4, but you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret, seal it up in the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. We're, we're, we're supposed to know what the book of Daniel is talking about, but not until the time of the end. Okay? And then, and knowledge will increase. We will understand this. Uh, you know, usually people like to say knowledge increase has to do with technology and computers and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm not saying that's not part of the subject, but that's not what this sentence is talking about. This is, sentence is talking about biblical prophecy will increase as we f- get further along. You're going to know more about the book of Daniel the closer to the end times that you get. That's what, that's what he's talking about there. Okay? Um, so, so when we're seeing all of this stuff in, in 12, which is all about the end time, the subject has not changed from verse 21 to then. So to me, it, it's not speculation as much. There is some of that. But it's not speculation as much. You've got to have an answer to some of this. It's no longer historical because we've left that. And the, the whole subject from 21 all the way to 12, which is all about the end time, is the same subject. So to me, the, the transition at verse 21 now takes us ahead, and that's why in verse 1 of chapter 12 where it says, at that time, this is the same time, what time? The end time. That, that Chapter 12 is all about the end time, and I think that starts in verse 21. Yes, ma'am. I have a question about verse 31. Yes. Uh, it talks about his army taking over the temple, the fortress, polluting the sanctuary, so the abomination of desecration is that... Am I following? Okay, so you said he doesn't have a a kingdom, but I think it's interesting because it says his army will take over the temple fortress. Do you think that could be something like the UN, or am I just far out with that? Well, okay. I mean, like, how is he going to muster all of these troops to enforce the, you know what I mean, the the conquest, so to speak? This is where where we get into what I was talking about earlier about... um, uh, like the, the, the life, the birth of Jesus and all that stuff. We have it written in Scripture. It was prophetic for the time of Jesus, but nobody understood how to put it together until it was unfolding. And then they saw it, and then the writers of the New Testament brought out these prophecies as having been fulfilled. Okay? Some of this stuff is, where does he come from? We don't actually know. We know that it, from the... From the ten horns and the one horn and the three horns and the one comes out of the three, all this. We understand all of that, but we don't know what those are. Um, I have ideas, but my ideas are limited to what? My knowledge I have right now. What if Jesus is not coming back for a thousand years? The way that they're going to see it unfold when it happens, everybody will recognize it. This is why I was saying earlier that the Jewish people will recognize that this stuff is happening as it's unfolding from Scripture, right? If we are in the end times, and I, and I believe that we are, if we are in the end times, then I start looking at these things and I say, okay, according to where we are now, these ten kingdoms, the three horns, the Antichrist, all this other kind of stuff, there's some things that we know for sure that are going to happen well, we don't know how. The fact that he goes into the temple at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the fact that he does the, the um, abomination of desolation, declares himself to be God, the, 
Satan takes over him. All this stuff. That stuff is, is all factually written in Scripture. How it's unfolding now, if it's now, we have to speculate. Where does he get his army from? We don't know. I think if you're speculating right now, the UN would be a legitimate option for that. right? But again, that's speculation because we don't know. And even back up 20 years ago, you would have said some of these things different even then. You know how this could have happened. If you back up 25 years ago, you wouldn't have made uh, Islam as much of a strong force in Scripture as we see now that it is because of all the stuff that's unfolded. Um, a lot of the descriptions that we get that are very solid descriptions of Islam now, we didn't know that 25 years ago, right? Some of that makes sense. Okay, so where does he get his army from? I don't know. But he doesn't come, he doesn't have an army, he doesn't have a country, he doesn't have all this stuff. But all of a sudden, all of these countries are following him to the point where they all um, back him when it comes to signing this peace treaty with Israel. But at the same time, he's a very charismatic leader. He's, he's convincing people. At the same time, we're going to read some of this stuff here. Uh, many of these countries are afraid of him. And he comes in and takes over their country. They're, they're, they're not all following him because he's candy and roses, but he is deceiving a lot of people. That's the scriptures I was reading just a little bit ago, where um, verse uh, 21, he will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. There is the flattery and intrigue mentality. But then the very next sentence, before him great armies will be swept away. That's not flattery and intrigue. That's domination. Right? Okay? With deceitful promises, he will make variance, various alliances. He will, did, did somebody else have a question? Huh? It's fine. You've moved on. Well, I can move back. It wasn't, I guess it was kind of a question going back to what Christy said. Because it, it, in two different places, in verse 24, no. Yes, 23. It says he'll become strong despite having only a handful of followers. Then in 24, it says, oh, 25, sorry. Then he will stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south. So it does say he gets an army. We just, again, don't know how. We don't know how. I mean, it tells us some things. His it courage. says flattery and intrigue, deceitful promises, Promises he will sweep through countries and take over. This is this is a way to look at it. Okay, um, the the problem is it doesn't fit exactly because Hitler had a country, but when Hitler started moving through Europe, he just took places over, and then those armies became his armies. It's it's that kind of thinking because it says all these things. These are not in disagreement with each other from sentence to sentence. We just don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We, we're, we're seeing what he's going to do. And again, why, are we, why is the Lord telling us what he's going to do? Because he wants people to recognize when it's happening. Not necessarily what we're doing here tonight, which is speculating. That's not really the, the, the primary reason it's written. He writes it so that when it's happening, people will be going, oh, yeah. And specifically, who is always the center focus of this stuff? The Jews. So who is he trying to give this information primarily to? The Jews. So that the Jews see this when it's happening. 
Because remember, he's going to declare himself to be God in the temple, a Jewish temple that he has rebuilt, and he starts the sacrifices. He declares himself to be God. The Jewish people will recognize that quicker than anybody else, that that can't be true. Right? Pat? I think a great example of what you're talking about that's been fulfilled is can a nation be born in a day? When Israel became a nation, the only way it could have been born in a day is if it would have been politically done. And that's exactly the way it was done. And it was a world agreement to do that uh, through the, not the United Nations, who was it? It was Uh, the pre-United Nations, the government, the Council of Government or something? League of Nations? No, it was, uh, was it League of Nations? Yeah. But that's the only way it could have been fulfilled. Yeah. And we're looking at the future the same way. To a Jewish person, in their day, they would have said, that's impossible. How could that happen? An army take over and, and set up a country in one day had to be political. Yeah. And the fact that as, this, as the Antichrist is sweeping through um, Egypt, Israel, Syria, well, I'm going the opposite direction, but you know what I'm saying. Um, you, I can't imagine that happening right now. I can't. The, the closest thing that we've ever seen in history, well, there's been a few like Hitler or Napoleon or some of that, that has happened, but not, not as quick as this is saying. So that means these allegiances are surrendering of countries and surrendering of armies to this Antichrist. The best that I can tell from this. Aiden. Um, a couple of things. Um, yeah, it was... Um I think it was a Bellflower Pact, and it was the Rothschilds behind the financing of Israel being established yeah. out, of, out, of, out of England. But aside from that, I'm curious about something. <clears throat> Daniel, I'm assuming he's, he's, he's still in Persia. He's an older man now because he was there all of his life. Mm-hmm. So now he, writing this at this point, is he now an older man and writing this to the Jews in Jerusalem? Yeah, he's probably in his 80s by this time. Yes, he is writing this. Yes, he's writing this to the Jews, but you can't just limit it to that because he's, he's, he's in Persia. Um, well, no, he's in Babylon, but looking into Persia. In fact, the, the vision before this, remember God shows him uh, through a vision or maybe even bodily, picks him up and takes him to um, right inside Iran. Okay, But he's in Babylon. He's having all these visions and stuff. Uh, in Babylon during this time. So is he writing to the Jewish people? Yeah, but he's, he's writing to everybody. It's kind of like the book of Revelation, the first three chapters. You're writing to the seven churches, but that's not all John was writing to. He's writing to us to- also. So yes, this is for the Jewish people. And okay, so what I just said a little bit earlier, everything focuses around the Jewish people. But he also, we get to read it too. and We also get to see the signs of the times. But he's writing to the Jewish people so that they will see this stuff. Going back to, to Daniel 2, that, that the, the rock cut out that lands on the feet of the, eye, of the uh, statue, that's Jesus. He's trying to get the Jewish people to see the Messiah coming. He's trying to get them to see Jesus. Um, God is, not Daniel. Daniel's just writing what God says and the visions and then what Gabriel says. But God is trying to get them to see Jesus. That's... Well, because almost all of the Old Testament's about Jesus coming. Daniel's no different. Daniel also just jumps way ahead 
um, after Jesus to the second coming of Jesus too. Yeah, yeah, but the Jews are God's people. That's that, I mean, that's how it is, and I. That's why so many American theologians like this replacement theology. Drives me crazy. You know what drives replacement theology? Uh, Anti-Semitic mentalities. That's what drives it. It's not, oh, we have this revelation that we're the new people of God. And so, no, it's because you don't like Jewish people. And you don't like the fact that Jewish people are God's people. But they are, and that's never going to change. And the entire Bible starts with Jewish people, centers around Israel. It's all about the Abrahamic covenant. It's about God's people in the land he sent them, and God is their God. That's the focus. We, as non-Jewish people, get grafted into that. We get the privilege of being adopted. But the arrogance of Western theologians says, no, we, take, we replace them, and the Jews are no longer important. It's the church now. And you'll see that in so many books and theological sermons and all kinds of stuff. Well, well, this is the church. This is the blessings of the church. No, there is, there is never, ever in Scripture just the blessings of the church. It is the blessings of God's people, which we get to be grafted into. We get to be adopted into. Now, to say that, that Jews also have to accept Jesus as their Savior which is the reason for all of this story, so that hopefully they see that. And when the Antichrist does his little ditty at the three-and-a-half-year point, that's going to be the big eye-opening point. The sad part about that is while they're getting saved potentially by the millions, they're also getting uh, massacred too. So, yeah. Well, this is not how I wanted to go through this at all. We've been jumping all over the place, um, and we've gotten nowhere while getting a lot at the same time. Because I do want to walk down through this verse by verse, so we're going to have to do that um, not next week, uh, the week after that. <clears throat> so, how do we pray about this? Yeah. Yeah, with whatever power you have to do that, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think our focus as we're reading this has to be, this is to the Jews. I think we can own it ourselves. This is to me also, right? It's also for missionaries and ministers. Yeah. Who are laying the ground for what's about to happen. Yeah, that's why we support the Zetos. Uh, missionaries to Israel. You know, sometimes, specifically when I'm reading stuff and not when I'm reading the Bible, but I'm also reading the Jerusalem Post and all these other things that I read, and my heart just, my heart is so moved for the Jewish people. Here's part of the thing. This has been happening all this week. Because of America's overturn of Roe versus Wade, Israel is amping up abortion. It's, it's in every Jewish newspaper. And none of them are against it. Everybody, all the conservative and the liberal, everybody is saying, well, since America is now um, harming and attacking the um, 
reproductive rights of women or something like that. Uh, we're going to be more enlightened and more liberal, and we're going to make sure that everybody has access to abortions easier. And they're making laws this week in Israel to make it better. It, that stuff always hurts me because they're God's people. And while God holds them close to his chest, Scripture also shows us he will judge them quicker too because of that. Um, do you have a bunch? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, here's here's one of the things that um, that I read today. The way that some of the women's groups are um, saying this is, why would you make what what authority do you have to make me reproduce? What's wrong with that statement? They already chose to do that. That ah, just drives me crazy. Nobody's making you reproduce. You chose to do that. It's just so selfish. I just want to do my thing, and I'm not going to be held accountable no matter what. You know, I have, I haven't. You know, we have ladies in the church have had abortions. We've talked about their testimonies and things like that. I, I don't know if if we're ever going to be able to go down this road because. I don't have the permission from the people. But do you know that we have men in our church that have struggled with this? That their child was aborted? But because they were the man, they didn't get a voice? You know, men struggle with the concept of um, abortion from they had to go through it as one of the parents too. This is not just a woman's issue. It just drives me crazy. So, so yeah, here's, here's the way that I look at all this stuff is, God, show me. When I need to see something and I need to recognize it, show it to me first in your word, but then make sure that my eyes are open to see it. Not just how many people read the word but never see it. God, I want to see your word. I want to see when it's unfolding. I want to see, and not just in a prophetic sense, I want to see it all the time unfolding. In my life, your life. I want to see it. So, all right, let's pray. Sunday I'm speaking, I'm doing a Frog in the Rock series. If you haven't been here long enough, you don't know what that is, but you'll know after Sunday. And I'm really praying that we have, um, that God really does some supernatural stuff with us Sunday. I'm really praying about that. I, my spirit needs this. It's my, my, I don't know how to explain it, but I'm, my spirit's almost breaking inside for this. And I would just need this. So, so God, we thank you so much for you. God, you are so big. You are so powerful and you're so majestic. And God, you are not defined by anything. You define you. Lord, you tell us who you are. We don't get our information from the world or from politicians or from Washington or anywhere else, Lord, we get who you are from you. And Lord, we just submit ourselves to you. You're the king. We submit ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for today, and we thank you for tomorrow. And, and 
And whatever the future holds, we look to you. Good or bad, we look to you. Lord, our, our country is breaking and crumbling around our ears. But that doesn't change you. And so, Lord, we look to you. We keep our eyes on you. And uh, we thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much. Dying for us. Blessing us. Wrapping your arms around us. Bringing us truth. We thank you. Lord, and um, just bless us Sunday with you. Bless us with your spirit. Keep everybody safe as they're working in the fireworks stands and the guys spending the night out there. Keep them safe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right.